Welcome to the British History Channel with me, Philippa Lacey Brule, and to our latest historian interview. Welcome back if you have been here before and a warm welcome to you if this is the first time you're checking out my channel. If you love British history, then you're definitely in the right place. We have a whole library of historian interviews, virtual tours and documentaries for you to check out. You can also join me live each Wednesday at one o'clock for History Tea Time Chat Live. Now today, uh, and if you are regular here, then um, you don't need to adjust your uh, your sets, your your audio. I have a cold, <laughs> so I do sound different today. But today, I am joined by historian and author, uh, uh, Dr. Jonathan Foyle. Jonathan was a curator of historic buildings at Hampton Court Palace for eight years and took his PhD on reconstructing Wolsey's Palace. Having headed a charity for eight years, he is a frequent writer for the Financial Times on issues of architecture, history and craft, and a consultant on historic sites, and has produced six cathedral monographs. Um, he has presented a number of television series, including BBC Four's often repeated and well worth a watch, Henry VIII, uh, Patron or Plunderer. His most profound interest is in the origins and meaning of the rich court culture of Henry VII, the meeting place between the Gothic and classic traditions at a pivotal point in the nation's history. Jonathan has also been a contributor to my tours over the past few years, speaking on the Anne Boleyn tour and on the On Progress with Anne Boleyn about Hampton Court Palace and also, topic of today, the continuing discovery of Tudor artefacts. So if you're a member of my British History Patreon Club, you had a chance to submit your own questions for Jonathan, which I will put to him at the end of the main interview. That part will make up the extended and patrons always get ad-free versions of these interviews. If you would like the chance to submit your questions for future guests, you can become a patron easily and cheaply at patreon.com forward slash British History to which you will also have a whole host of other history lover benefits coming your way, including being a member of our book club. Um, you get early access to tour tickets. You get discounts on event tickets, uh, exclusive blog and exclusive behind the scenes content. But anyway, that's not what we're here for today. So let's get started and meet Jonathan. Thank you for doing this today. I've been really excited about getting you on for ages. Oh, so I've given everyone a bit of a brief introduction um, to you, but would you mind in your own words, just letting people know sort of who you are and what you do? Yeah, so my name's Jonathan Foyle. And look, I I trained in architecture and also history of art and archaeology because I find this whole discipline quite a restless one. It lends itself, I think, to a multidisciplinary approach. So I was uh, I worked on Canterbury Cathedral for a first job, which was marvellous. And then Hampton Court and Kew Palace as curator there for eight years and realised that narrative drives so much of this. I mean, why do people care? Because it has a story to it that that uh, means something to us. And so I went into writing and broadcasting for a number of years, written for the Financial Times, uh, six monographs on cathedrals and um, numerous um television programs most lately um secrets of the royal palaces on channel five um but for eight years was head of the world monuments fund in britain so raising money for historic buildings and uh, generally um lecture 
uh, write pretty widely, actually, and uh, managed to make a living from my enthusiasms on the built heritage, which is a, a wonderful gift. Yeah, I, I attended your um, uh, your online talk you did about uh, Westminster not oh, too long ago. Palace. That was absolutely fascinating. Again, like we were just talking before we started this prop of the architectural history, then it makes sense of things. Like how did they get from the palace to the abbey for all these ceremonies? And then you realise there's, you know, there's a door that was like right next to the entrance. Oh, that makes sense. But of course today, one, we don't have the original palace at Westminster, but you've got the road there and it kind of distorts your understanding of how the, um, the layout of, of everything would have worked. So, but it is lovely to see you again. I think last time I saw you, you, well, you were talking on one of, um, of my tours which of course you've done a few times over the past couple of years which has been fabulous and you you've spoken about Hampton Court Palace but you've also spoken about the discovery of Tudor artifacts which seems like it's Mm. something that is taking up more and more of your your time so I thought that would be quite an exciting thing to talk about today because it also seems like something people could almost give a hand to (laughs) give a help with if they're aware just how much stuff is out there and everything. Anyway, so I thought that'd be a great conversation um, we could have today. So, so should we start off with um, like when and how you got into finding these artifacts? Okay. So um, 20 years ago, I finished my PhD on reconstructing Woolsey's Hampton Court. And uh, a lot of people go to Hampton Court, of course, expecting to see a palace of Henry VIII, which it was. It's just that he carved his palace out of what remained of Thomas Woolsey's archbishop and cardinal. And um, Henry leaves the majority of the written description and uh, the records of what happened at Hampton Court as well as his associations. And it struck me then that Henry had pulled out a lot of Wolsey's palace. Um, And I always was left with the question, what happened to it? You know, was it burned out of spite? What would be the point of that? Was some reused? Were some bits taken as trophies? But of course, you never expect to find anything of that period because it's half a millennium ago and the Civil War happened and the rest of it. So it was... Um, A wet Wednesday in 2012, when I had a phone call from someone who said, um, look, you're interested in Tudor buildings, aren't you? And environments, I said, I am. He said, well, I think I've got a Tudor bed. Um, His name was Ian Coulson. And um, he bought a bed at auction, which was described as uh, Victorian and was heavily carved. And so I said to him, well, you know, that's what, what and I said, why do you think it's royal? He said, well, it's got royal arms on. I said, well, numerous things have royal arms on, don't they? Because there's obeisance where people demonstrate their allegiance to kings and queens. So um, he said, look, I've been dealing with furniture for 28 years at the time. And he said, it's the oldest thing I've seen. So if you ever want to come and look at it, I said, where do you live? He said, <laughs> near Hadrian's Wall. <laughs> and, uh, he said, but no one's taking me seriously. And I thought, well, I can see why, really, because it's so improbable. You know, but then again, Venice is improbable. Um, and it stayed in the back of my mind. So um, I was asked by the editor of the FT if I could write something for Valentine's Day 2013. And this thing, this thing bugged me. So um, I could justify the train fare at last. And so I went up there to have a look at it. And that really opened a portal for me 
because I thought I could demonstrate through, if not archaeology, then art history, um, or and then an understanding of the the context, you know, spatial context of items within Tudor palaces. I thought, well, look, um, I'll quite quickly be able to demonstrate one way or another whether this thing he's got is right or wrong, and then at least we can, you know, literally put it to bed. And um, so I went up there, and this thing was absolutely. Um, mind-boggling because it clearly was old it's possibly made of old parts but one of the questions was you know where did it come from and uh, what's it trying to say to you in its carving and when you start to ask those questions you really go into you know your Alice really through the looking glass you go into a different world if it, because if it's correct it starts teaching you things and make teaching you things, making sense of other forms of art like literature and manuscripts, you know, from the period. And then you have this um, multidisciplinary um, alignment of what this thing is telling you, and the authenticity of it makes your mind swim because you're learning a language and you realize. It's like talking Esperanto, you know, <laughs> people who haven't gone through that process of looking at such a rich object haven't had access to this language. And so you realize you sound barking mad when you say that this thing is actually right. Um, and, and if people say, well, it's not, then a stubborn person like myself is going to say, OK, well, I'll find more information. So I spent 10 years now looking for um, evidence, corroborations, challenges, all of which is about three PhDs worth. Mm. That's a long, it's a long answer to you, but that, that's how I got into it. And um, it became clear to me that just as he'd done in, in buying something from auction, that auction houses are not concentrating these days on brown furniture. You know, this, it's anything that's wooden, varnished and carved is seen to be, um, <laughs> you know, last generation or last three generations ago, but mid-century modern, and um, Chinese uh, things are, are what people are genning up on because that's where the money is. Mm. But so, so you get these artifacts that suddenly come out of people's houses and they, Lord knows how they've got there, but suddenly they come up on the market. Now, for the first time in history, you can see uh, auction catalogs all in one go. You can do a comprehensive search. The IT age allows us to see in ways we never could before. In, in terms of scholarship, of course, you can look on Google Books and you put in search terms and you get um, themes which come up in visual iconography, in music, in literature, the lot. And suddenly then you, know, you see this intersection of ideas and it's such a rich way to learn. Well, you know, you can apply that to the commercial world and say, well, I'm going to search through uh, auction catalogues. And when things come up, of course, there are loads of revivalist pieces. I mean, the, mm. the, the Victorian age is an ocean of fakery and museum curators are reasonably scared of that period because many careers have been burned by modern science disproving the assumption that something is correct. And what do curators have if, if, if not connoisseurship you know if once your connoisseurship is punctured mm. that's pretty much the end of it isn't it so you can i can see why people are very wary and stay a distance of these things but if you are if you are cavalier and you don't mind making a few mistakes um then the there if one percent of the objects that you you trial you troll through um 
is that that's not the word is it troll these days uh, <laughs> that you uh what am i thinking that you troll through that's it isn't it uh <laughs> online trolling and trolling are two different yeah it's different different things <laughs> so you need to troll through um the um catalogs but if one percent are period you know if they're 16th century then fantastic if one tenth of one percent are attributable well then you can you can you can tell people where they came from who they belong to the language will tell you what they're trying to say and suddenly you have things which are much richer i find than historical documents upon which we all trade Mm. because you have the genuine reflection of people in the past and if you can identify those people uh, and you can see the way in which they wanted to show their heraldry, their attributes, their learning, their aspirations through different kinds of um, iconography and symbolism, then you have primary historical resources and they are priceless. So um, I think it's worth the trawl. You know, if I, I find maybe one interesting thing a year. And I can be antisocial for a long time before I find it. But once I do. It's, I was going to ask you about the process. Like, I mean, how much time is this taking? What What do you actually, so you're trawling catalogues to, and kind of what's going to pick your eye then? What, 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 like, how, how do you, it must be, there must be, it must be great on one hand that you can get hold of all these catalogues regardless of location. So it doesn't matter that you're not in the local area anymore, but then yeah. there must be loads. So how do you, it's very risky because, of course, if you're looking at photographs online, they tend to be pretty lousy photographs because auctioneers mm. are, are just putting stuff through. Um, and attributions are very often quite lazy or wrong and mm. photographs are partial. So if you've got something that is described as continental style, and what does that mean? We do which part mm. of the continent? Is, yeah. Does the style mean that they think it looks continental or is it a deliberate evocation? Are they saying it's a revivalist piece? So you have to read into um, descriptions quite a lot. And then if you really if if you think it's an important piece, you really ought to go and look at it firsthand. I mean, nothing can be truly ascertained until you've looked at the quality of the timber, things like traces of paintwork, that kind of thing, you know, um, redundant fixtures and fittings and um, characteristics of period style. So um, that that's all important. You can't, you can't do everything just by scouring uh, the online catalogues. But if you see a couple of things that pique your interest, um, I'll try and build it into, um, you know, a journey. If I'm giving a talk somewhere, I'll, I might do a diversion and, and go <laughs> and have a look. But um, sometimes it's just worth a punt. Um, it is because very often, if it's not correct, it'll have caught my eye because it's decorative and evocative of something. And if I've paid, let's say, £200 for something, then that's £10 more than someone who would have paid £190. So, you know, the worst that can happen is you put it back in an auction somewhere else and you tend to get back right. <laughs> your commission, what you paid for it. So that's that's the price of taking a punt on the whole. But um, So do you always go and see the items that you're actually going to bid on? I, I, I try to see them, but sometimes at the other end of the country. And yeah. uh, so, you know, I have bought things and had them mailed. And I've made a couple of mistakes, you know, I don't mind saying um but you you have to do that you know in, in anything that's um pushing the boundaries 
whether it's business or scholarship or anything, you know, you have to be prepared to to make your mistakes and then and then correct them. But it's part of the learning process. Mm. So yeah, that's that's great. I would say actually that there is um, something of a, a, a we tend to learn and we tend to adopt careers as silos very often you know you when 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 the when the late queen said to people what do you do i don't know if king charles iii does that but the queen always you say what do you do and you have to describe it in terms of your vocation generally you know that's that's your worth in life and your position is your vocation mm. and um the the issue is that furniture history is quite a niche subject and it has a particular society and group that publishes furniture history or regional furniture history. Curators are, you know, a small number and um, scholarship in this area is quite, um, I, I would say, you know, quite circumscribed. There are, there are a limited number of people doing it. The irony is that if you're an architectural historian, interested in the Middle Ages, by far the greatest repository of early furniture is not in museums, it's in cathedrals and churches. And it's that which gives you exposure, both to typical modes of construction in medieval buildings, and also the character of different classes of uh, medieval carving. And, um, and also the language, you know, the correct language. You can tell the difference between a medieval piece and a Victorian piece in, in churches because they are, that's the main repository for people evoking the Middle Ages. That's where it all happens. It's not the stuff that winds up in museums. It's, it's church buildings. And if you've had 25 years of a career being involved in church buildings, your eye is into these things. You can see the difference. So if... Um, you know, I, I'm not part of the furniture history world of scholarship. That's not where I come from. Uh, I'm an outsider. But ironically, I would say that I am more um, immersed in the character of medieval furniture simply because it's still attached to buildings. And that's that's, mm. you know, that that's my background. So, you know, as an outsider, you can sometimes not be part of the circle and um, one's findings can be you know, seen as, well, that's, you know, you're, you're a buildings person, not a furniture person, you know, and so we have these ideas of scholarship, education, careers, they tend to be silos, we're pigeonholed mm. to be one thing or another. But actually, I'm a big fan of interdisciplinary study, and actually mm. doing these things, comparing notes with other people and getting their, you know, opinion and feel on it, because everything's connected. Mm. Uh, it surely it's, must aid the understanding it. of each to know another just because life is like that you can understand someone's life in modern day times without knowing all sorts of things Absolutely. Um, and there's there's a really good example of how this plays out um i was asked um by sarah morris to have a look at a church in bedfordshire which is which is called St Leonard's Old Warden, and she's writing was writing a book uh, with Natalie Gruninger on um, what's left of Henry VIII's wives, and mm. St Leonard's and Old Warden legend had it contained some panels put in the church in 1841 by Lord Ongley, 
And that period, 1841, it's in the white heat of Walter Scott enthusiasm, you know, <laughs> from the 1820s on, people are building the houses of their ancestors and filling churches with the bric-a-brac generally that comes from the French um, Napoleonic Wars, when the abbeys in France are dismantled and houses are ransacked. And there's all kinds of stuff that comes through the auction houses in London that feeds that antiquarian zeal in England. So it's a really rich period for um, Victorians getting hold of stuff and stuffing it into their houses. The big question then is, did they get hold of early material or did they generally um, you know, have, have replica medieval uh, mm. carvings and so on and you have to be able to tell the difference so I went to Old Warden Church to look at this particular ensemble of material that was renowned as coming from France and Netherlands and um, uh, as well as England and there were some panels which were associated with Anne of Cleves and her chapel in Bruges according to one local historian uh, to which Pevsner correctly said what she got to do with Bruges <laughs> She has nothing to do with her. She comes from the Rhineland. And um, so I looked at these and one has an AC on it with a knot, which could actually be, you know, two different people united by a marriage knot. But then there's a, a snarling lion in another center of another oval cartouche. And some of these panels have crowns over the top of the uh, oval cartouche. Um, uh, and the third one is an is an escarbuncle, which is an heraldic device, and it is the heraldic device of Cleves. So yes, you have AC, but no one had mentioned this escarbuncle before. There was um, a local historian, Christine, who had been working on it, and um, so all credit to her. Um, but the big thing was, if you go to Anne of Cleves Monument in Westminster Abbey, which is her primary material survival, there are exactly the same designs on her tomb. So now we've gone from AC to the Cleves family, to the specific woman. However, are these things 19th century? Were they put in the church by Lord Ongley or could they possibly be remnants of Anne of Cleves house? Well, when we go to the scholarly literature, there is a the main book on the reuse of continental carvings in English churches. Um, by a former museum curator, says that they are fine, but they're 18th century French work. Well, they match Anne of Cleves, so they're not French, are they? They're, um, they're very possibly English at this point. Um, and are they 18th century? How can they be 18th century if they match a tomb of a lady who died in 1557 in England? So you have this authoritative voice um, that comes in that book and we could all go home at that point and say okay well that's that's the authoritative uh, assumption or claim but then Bonham's auction house put a put one up for sale quite an extraordinary coincidence I remember again scouring through the catalogues and suddenly up comes one of these panels still with some early surface gesso you know glue and chalk covering to mm -hmm. make this thing look like stone and they called it a Jacobean panel of circa 1610 um, and they took that provenance from yet another example of these panels, one of which is in the Museum of London. They said it came from um, a, um, a house on the Strand. Um, so you've got a claim for 18th century. You've got a claim for 17th century, both of which are, you know, primary authoritative sources. 
Um, it could be 19th century, and it could now be a copy, a Victorian copy of Anne of Cleves' tomb. But what if it is, in fact, 16th century? And the Bonhams example with the early gesso surface suggests that it probably was 16th century. So what happened is that the Bonhams panel was available to do dendrochronology on, you know, to take the tree rings. And uh, Professor yeah. Peter Klein did the dendrochronology. He's, in fact, a specialist on exactly that area, the kind of source of, of panel paintings that came to, to England, you know, boards from really good cold climate oak. Anyway, he, he, he uh, took the rings and found it matched a data set growing between 1383 and 1525, plus 20 years or so of trimmed rings. So it coincided exactly with Anne of Cleves' divorce from Henry VIII. And so we can say um, through some common details throughout this entire series, that all of them came from a very rich interior of Anne of Cleves herself, not in Bruges, but probably Bletchingly in Surrey, um, possibly Hever, it's one of those houses given to her by Henry VIII. And suddenly these things you realise are either lost in plain sight in a parish church, completely unacknowledged by the Victorian who bought them, erroneously interpreted by a scholarly source, erroneously interpreted by the auction houses. And that is the gap that we have to occupy and inhabit and say, where are the discrepancies? Where are the misunderstandings? How can we find the evidence to actually start to understand things which can be floating around, lost in plain sight, misattributed? And that's where the magic is, mm -hmm. is really being annoying enough to mm -hmm. say, um, you might be wrong. You know, and <laughs> a lot of authorities don't like that, you know, but uh, I was going to ask you if you've had um, resistance because, you know, this this does happen if you are um, I've, I've known a few historians who found sort of things uh, uh, more recently and the resist resistance that comes back straight away mm -hmm. is uh, is is quite staggering, actually, as someone neutral to the pursuit Uh I, I think. Well, why wouldn't you be interested in new information? But did you have you come across resistance then when you've? Uh, I found I found a lot of um, resistance in the form of just not responding, right? Yeah, not responding. I mean, I think uh, I think uh, with something that's very clearly demonstrable, like that panel. Mm. Um, it is now in Hever Castle and is properly interpreted. And that's the great delight to me is that hundreds of thousands of people can see the typical level of quality and messaging in an interior of Henry VIII's fourth queen. You know, what happened mm -hmm. to her after she was a queen? She reverted to the language of her ducal title, you know, and used the ducal crown and the Cleves heraldry, not the heraldry of England. And all mm -hmm. that is fascinating and primary and really important. And what I really love to have happened is for the furniture world, the um, curating world, to just write a note and say, gosh, this is fascinating. You know, would you like to write up a paper in our journal or something, you know, and get involved really. Mm. But there's a silence, a wall of silence. And I don't know, I don't know why that is particularly, except it's either disinterest or a feeling that what's in it for them. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. It must be some human, human um, impulse behind it. But mm. there are numerous discoveries 
that I've made of of items which I have um, written up reports on and and sent because something should something should happen to them. Um, there is, I guess, an inherent issue in that if you buy something, and this is where they come up is on commercial markets, and so you have to buy it. Mm. And therefore, if you are telling people about something that you've bought, it is, I suppose, a commercial item and you become a salesperson. And people say, well, you would say that, you know, because, you know, they're assuming that it's my retirement plan. Um, but I've, I'm, the greatest reward is to put things into museums where they belong. I've done this for French textiles, for example, researched them. Um, I found part of the bed valance of the courtier who married Louis XIV. Um, um, and his house was demolished, or his castle, his chateau, near um, south of Bordeaux, near Biarritz. Um, his name was Antoine de Gramont III, and um, the marriage of Louis XIV on the Isle of Pheasants between um, France and Spain in 1640, he organized that. And so it's just at the time when Versailles is about to emerge. I mean, it's really fascinating. He was educated by Cardinal Richelieu and you can see this Catholic imagery in rich silks. And it's only about a meter long section, but it has his heraldry and stump work in the middle. And I bought that from an antique dealer in um, the Netherlands. And it's very clear that it's uh, what it is. Um, It was unattributed. And so I've sold it to the museum in France closest to where he belongs. And I, I, I'm, I'm just delighted when that happens because mm-hmm. it's making use and value out of things which otherwise would just be bric-a-brac, you know, and instead mm-hmm. they're things of real cultural importance. So in the UK, when I've found things and, you know, I've got an MA and a PhD behind me, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, and I'm really happy to admit mistakes. That's fantastic. So what I would like is either interest or feedback. I want counter evidence. You know, if I'm not mm. right, show me why I'm not, and I'll absolutely accept that. But instead, you get this wall of silence and suspicion, you know? <laughs> because mm. I guess the antiques trade is full of it. I mean, gosh, I've, the things I've seen being sold by antique dealers it gives secondhand car dealers they look like saints by comparison. I mean, there's so much, so many dubious claims. I can partly, um, you know, understand it, but. Um, I, the, the, our historic properties uh, have a few items. If we're lucky, like the Hall of Hampton Court, you have a few items being displayed where they were intended to be displayed. But 99% of the historic items which were once on display in places like Hampton Court have gone. Mm-hmm. And so to, you know, to put them back on display is an imperative out of thought and to understand the things that were missing and the swimming around again you want some engagement you want some feedback but i found um a kind of blank response most of the time and if i ask for counter evidence you know it, it, it doesn't tend to come so that's all i ask is is mm. you know scholarly engagement debate a conversation essentially mm. um but in many cases i have to say outside the curatorial world uh, where reputations matter I've taken uh, items around the country to talk about them. And, um, you know, I've, I've shown them as well to scholars of this period who are slightly off grid 
Um, so not not belonging to institutions, but pursue this kind of research for the love of it. And um, I have to say there, there is a book somewhere um, to account for all this that, that I need to write. That's the burden that I carry. I've really got to produce a, a scholarly and reference tome, I suppose. Um, you know, if you, if you, let's say though, imagine you buy an object from an auction house and you think it's important because of what its evidence shows you materially, uh, culturally, in terms of its symbolism, uh, age, the, the rest of it. And you approach a journal, a scholarly journal, and you say, I want to write about my object and explain what it is, uh, and the object that I bought from an auction house. And I want to tell you why it's important. No one's going to publish you because they're seeing uh, they're seeing that as a way of validating what is a commercial entity because it has a value to it and that's that's a that's a big issue that's a big it's issue the risk there as well that, that with that though is that nothing new can be discovered if 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 that's the attitude that it sort of assumes that everything that's out that everything that's known about is it and yet we we know from your work um and, and things that are coming up all the time, like you said as well, some things are actually hiding in plain sight. I'm thinking about Thomas Cromwell's Book of Hours that the that Kate McCaffrey and the Heaver team have just discovered. You know, it, it was it's in a light, it's in Oxford. You know, it's it was there but wasn't attributed. Um, but then, are, are people not are other people not looking for stuff? Are they not open well, to finding it? The the thing about tribalism um, is that. Uh, it's not it's not of course rational and mm. my i i have four they are wall posts so they have flat backs to them and they have three sets of junctions in them that is uh, for mortise and tenon joints so that rails can slot into both sides of these posts they're richly carved in the late medieval fashion they're very much the same school as um well they're henry the seventh's um, carving school and um, one has an H on one has an R one has a fleur-de-lis they're pl purely royal ciphers they have traces of typically medieval paint on them um, they are numbered with with in latin numbering um, ix or it could be xi so there are at least nine of them mm -hmm. and um, because a furniture historian called Adam Bowett um, doesn't like the thought that they're genuine he published a paper in in furniture history and said that they're presumably four posts from a Victorian bed. And bed posts are A, chunkier, B, they have to have the joints at 90 degrees because they're a box frame that are all in alignment. Yeah. When's, the, when's the last time you saw a nine poster bed? Um, and these things have flat backs. And so you're laying in bed looking at some roughly um, sliced and sawn flat back to all of your posts uh, all of all your all nine posts and by the way you can't get into bed because there's a middle rail that prevents you doing it and you know i don't know how that kind of claim gets into scholarly literature but mm. these are the people who the major auction houses and institutions like the vna use for their teaching and um you know that that i find a real issue because He's never looked at them. And I know he hasn't because I own them. And if he'd said, may I come and inspect these before I publish on them? I'd have said, do come and have a look. Let's have a discussion about what, what, what you're looking at. And, you know, and, but instead you have an antagonistic denial based on mm. completely 
unevidenced and in fact impossible claims and something's got to change there i mean this is mm. this is a this is a, a a journal which is subject to peer review and it actually gives peer review a bad name i have to say but you know if, if, if i sound stroppy about that i hope you can understand why i mean i i, I i'm really i've put these things on public display several times that so people can look at them and inspect them and figure them out and so it's it's quite annoying to see them published as something they're demonstrably not mm. in in a journal so um yeah that's that that's one of the things that i've i've faced but i have to say overwhelmingly um people are really interested and if i give a lecture about these things people say you know where where are they where are they now why aren't they in a museum and that that's that's the response and i think mm. it's one really so it's a matter of time it's probably going to take my passing it might take another generation before a number of these things are um accepted and and um uh, studied but I have to say, I mean, the thing that got me into this, this, this bed, which is still owned by Ian Coulson, um, I said to him uh, within about four or five months of uh, studying it and trying to find problems with it. And in fact, learning from it constantly, I said, I think you could get 20 PhDs out of this, this one object, because every aspect of it, you know, heraldry, material, um, mm. the, the decoration and colour, the context in the painted chamber in Westminster, which it matches, um any one of those things could could spur uh, learning so to me the longer you have this brick wall put up mm. uh, for, for new um discoveries then the longer it is that you deny the pursuit of scholarship you know there are things of course which are readily accepted including the tapestry of henry the eighth in spain um and um the pendant the gold pendant recently found by a metal detector you know that went through mm. uh, samples and, and and trials but um um you know th these things each have their own methodologies one of the issues actually that's blighted the um uh, the henry the seventh bed is that there have been two approaches to dendrochronology and the first one in 2013 claimed that the oak in that bed was come, came from Massachusetts, New York area, felled after uh, 1753, I think it was. And um, and so that's, that's, of course, you know, absolute death, isn't it? <laughs> to only claim that it's Tudor if the oak belongs to sometime after, after the 1750s. Uh, and then you think about the trimmed rings, like the Anne, Anne of Cleves panels, you have to add about at least 20 years of trimmed um mm. softwood and um so you end up in the robert adam period and of course it makes no sense of it as a cultural item what i quickly knew is that if it were to go to another dendrochronologist as a blind testing you you could not replicate that result um because i thought it was statistical coincidence and we found several dendrochronologists who either refused to do it because they didn't want to contradict a peer. We found one person, though, long experience, worked for English Heritage and many other organisations. Um, and it was this, this was 2016, uh, three years or four years after the first sample had been done. And he did indeed come back with an entirely different finding. 
And he said that what he'd identified is that there are signals of disruption within the growth of the tree every four years, which are symptomatic of a particular beetle in Middle Europe called a cockchafer beetle. And we've only understood this since 2015. So the thing is, you, you have a result of 2011, which mm. claims 18th century. And everyone says, no, it can't be right because the science says it's wrong. And then in 2015, people realize that this signal exists. And then this signal of disturbed um, growth is what's picked up by in 2016. That second scientist says, well, there cannot be any regular pattern by which to date this because of the disturbance. So it doesn't match any, any regular database. It can't do. And so you have two scientists in one discipline saying different things mm. and actually sowing doubt about the object through um, um, what's an impossible claim um, for the first analysis has has created all kinds of, of chaos in the acceptance of that object. I mean, the thing is, I, I, I've, I've um, you know, I've I've had feedback on the grapevine of, oh, you're just you're just doing more tests until you get the answer you want. But so does that mean then that dendrochronology will give me a random array of answers until I can choose one? Or is mm -hmm. it not rep replicable as any science should be? So mm. that its findings will never um never be anything but correct and consistent so i mean i i don't know i don't mm. understand uh the logic of that but what i can say is that um as karl popper said in the 1950s science doesn't just need to be consistent within its own discipline but it must scientific disciplines must exist within a firmament of approaches which are all cross-checked and say the same thing if you want a solid result mm. you know you need things to align and so you you it's it's an odd thing but you find yourself as a client where you take on um you commission mm. numerous scientific disciplines you end up with the problem of science that's not able to replicate its own results and if you yeah. say to the scientist your results are wrong, I mean, God, hell hath no fury, you know, but you're the only, you're the only person who's going to work that out because you're the only person that's doing the cross-checking. It's not the scientists yes. themselves. That they're person doesn't seem to realise what they're saying there is they're discrediting the whole of dendrochronology if that's what, but just by saying that, yeah. or you're just waiting for the result. Yeah. But also that science is, a, is an ever-questioning discipline by its, by its original definition. And... Um, so it should always be open to being like the thing about the beetle. Well, that's new information. Mm. You can even take that on the chin and say, well, we didn't know that when I did the dendrochronology in 2013. So this is new information. So, you know, I've changed my mind. That's how that's how science is supposed to work. I think that, sh that should be how any discipline works. Absolutely right. And, and of course, um, as more information is known, sometimes you find you find where the problems are, and one has to be open-minded about that. Mm. So, for example, English Heritage commissioned dendrochronology on Belsey Hall or Belsey Castle in Northumberland, mm. and um, what what they found in that analysis is that there were two data sets, which both provided 
acceptably strong results is to be conclusive in normal t- in normal terms. So um, one data set um, came up with uh, 15th century, and the second data set came up with late 16th century. They were 150 years apart. One was the north of England, the other one was the south. And because they knew where the building was, they decided it must be the 15th century north of England data set, not the south of England 16th century one, although the latter, the wrong one by a century and a half, was the stronger result. Mm. And so you find you find a discipline that has to, through understanding the logic of that object, being a building rooted in that place, they are able to disregard their own strongest scientific result mm. because it was impossible. And yet, if you're talking about furniture, which floats around and people don't know, you know, where it's rooted or based and don't have that sense of logic and geographical um, identity to it, then where do you go? How do you double check? How do you get rid of false positives within a scientific uh, analysis? And, and, And the answer is you're left to deal with that yourself. So when you're looking at an item, you're looking at lots of different layers of evidence, clearly. It's, there's not like one thing that's going to say, yeah, oh, this is definitely this, that or the other. It's it's all part of a, a puzzle to put together to, to, to identify it as far as you, you're, poss- you're able. Yeah, it is. So, um, I mean, it's very rare. The Henry VII bed is, you know, all credit to the owner. Has, he's, he's, he's done the right thing by by commissioning paint analysis, uh, carbon-14, dendrochronology twice, um, you know, just many uh, approaches to um, material um, analysis. Um, I probably should say a little bit more about that bed, actually. And and there's, I'll put a link under this when this, when this goes out to your video about, um, um, that's on YouTube about this about the bed, but this is supposed this 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 is Henry the Seventh and Elizabeth of York's marriage bed, isn't it? Yeah, I would have thought that was a bonkers claim. This is the thing I went up on the train to have a look at in 2013, and it was at the time the owner just said, "I think it's a royal bed of sorts." He thought it was made for Henry the Seventh when he visited Lancashire in 1495. Um, I think it was taken up there in 1495, along with the wainscot the wall posts which match it and also have hr on and i think it was entirely it was a suite which was made in 1485 for westminster and henry disassembled it and took it up to latham house where his mother margaret beaufort and his stepfather thomas stanley had a fortified residence much of it was built straight after bosworth because in fact it was thomas stanley's troops that marched down from latham from lancashire into Leicestershire in 1485 that put Henry on the throne in the first place. So in 1495, I mean, the problem didn't end, of course, because Perkin Warbeck was still kicking up a stink and mm. um, and um, ships were moored off the Kent coast, threatening London. So I think what this what we're looking at with the bed and related objects, and there are numerous other related objects, is the preparation of a royal retreat in 1495 if London were to fall to um, uh, to, to, to Warbeck's troops. And so he would fall back uh, with his troops to amalgamate with Thomas Stanley so they had a massive force in the northwest and could then drive back uh, and retake uh, the southeast. 
Um, and in order to do that, he needed to create within Latham a, a court, a royal environment. And in the 16th century, Latham was called the Northern Court. And it was um, it was renowned for being able to accommodate kings in poetry in the early 16th century. So, and what we find is, is a related series of objects available to study um, relatively close to Latham, but it's near Rochdale. So, um, so for the early antiquarians in Lancashire, this was the resource, which they had no idea came out of um, Westminster, but that's what my uh, research has um, identified. And um, that's, that's essentially what the, the story that the YouTube film um, um, explains. There have been a couple of other um, researchers that have published their own um, belief that Elizabeth I gave this bed to um, Nicholas Mosley, but that's because they hadn't read the transcript of the will properly. And um, they went on the basis of a Victorian um, um, an amateur writer who inserted that the bed was the queen's gift and there's no basis for, for that at all. Sadly, a, a book has been published with that as the provenance. But to go back to Henry and um, Latham, that's what these objects are doing there. And of course, a, a, such a thing that Henry Henry did it was, was covert. It, it doesn't form part of the records. It's, it's a piece of... Um, it's a military operation, essentially, quite secretive. And, it's also um, something that would show Henry's weakness or concern over a weakness, which he would never have wanted. Yeah. Known through, well, at the time or through the ages. Yeah. But he's, he's very canny. And, um, mm. you know, his mother, of course, put him on the throne, essentially. So for his mother's house to have been built as a fallback position as an insurance policy for her son being on the throne with actually you know, a dodgy claim you know which everybody knew it was it was he had to wait till um buckingham was dead in order to start to think oh my gosh you know i could be i could be in, in the running here so um it, it's it 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 really makes sense when you think about it the bed matches absolutely the mural in the painted chamber in westminster where we know the marriage bed was in in 1485 but it's a lot of evidence that is pieced together to build mm. up this picture and um back to your point it, about the multidisciplinary you know you need to know your architecture and the um the I, mean, I love it. The iconography, kind of the language of that, and then the the history of what was happening at the time that this bed was supposed to be made, used, or, or whatever. It takes all of those things to put to to identify something like this. Yeah, it does, and it also takes a lot of um, you know conversations with um, specialists. Uh, I don't particularly want to name them, but many um, leading scholars within Tudor history um, have been really um, helpful with their advice and their time and helped me to refine some of these ideas. I mean, there have been numerous dead ends where you think, oh, maybe that's where it went or that's its identity. And you test those ideas and it doesn't really make sense. But there is a historical context. We know that in 1495, when Henry went to Lancashire, he completely revised his sleeping quarters. He abandoned the bed position in the um, painted chamber, um, and which was surrounded by posts like a hospital bed, and um, surrounded himself with um, 
with security. Yeah, and mm. so so that that also makes sense that he's completely revising his palaces. In fact, he's pulling them apart and reusing them at the other end of the of the country as part of that picture. So it's I've been really indebted to Tudor scholars. And you'll see in books like um, Nathan Armin's um, accounts of Henry VII that, you know, these are understood and accepted. Scholars of, of medieval um, beds and furniture have built that into their, you know, theses and books. And all that's very rewarding because you can, you can see that people with the, um, with the incisive understanding are um, incorporating that now into the narrative. And I think that's that's where it needs to be but anyway yes mm. so henry henry the seventh's marriage bed and elizabeth of york where they're shown as at first glance they look like adam and eve but you realize they're holding an apple but the serpent still has its apple it can't get rid of it because they're making a, a gesture of mutual fidelity and its faithfulness which overcomes temptation and it's wonderfully rich this thing it's they're adam and eve reversioned as Christ and the Virgin. So the fall of mankind is answered by the saviors. And in paintings like Hans Memling's, you see the Virgin and Christ holding an apple between them because they are, it's, it's the way medieval iconography works. If the problem is presented through the apple as a symbol of the fall of mankind through temptation, what they're doing is reversing it and they're bringing it back. They're making it a symbol of salvation. And you can see that in medieval art. Um, the mm. great Netherlandish masters all use that when Christ and the Virgin hold an apple between them. So this thing is um, a, a manifesto for a king and queen who are saviors of the nation after civil war. They mm. are restoring paradise. And it's super powerful. Again, you don't get that in the primary documents because... Documents are made by administrators. It's the boring stuff of who paid for what. They don't say, in our heart of hearts, this is what we want you to think of us. But material objects can do that. And that's the, that's their power and value. And the difference between a medieval object that sets out to, to speak to its own audience on those terms and a Victorian piece, which is speaking it's ignorance through a whole mm. series of stereotypes and half understood um, echoes of, of the medieval past. You know, if, if you understand uh, medieval art, it's um, it's a completely it's black or white. It's like speaking French or or, or Cantonese. You know, it, they're, they're, they're so different, but um, you can't expect people, I guess, to see with the same eyes that you have. So. You know, that's it's just that's a shame it's keeping it from the public, though, that at the moment, because it's not on display. Ian still has it. Um, I'm sure he would you know, want people to be able to see it if only it could be. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Um, so, um, you know, I, I, at this point, at this point, I, I've, I've no idea what will what what will make it um, accepted and put on display. But I but there ought to be some kind of um, conversation, debate, you know, mm. discussion. That's where it's at. I mean, if there's a discussion, everyone learns something, right? And it's rich. Um, so um, I can only hope that one day such a thing will happen, and um, and it, it and it and it it and the objects that surround it, and there are numerous others related. Right. Um, all all take the position they 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 rightly they rightly should. Mm. Yeah. 
I've, I've waffled for ages on this you've been very no but that's fascinating well okay I've got a couple of more questions before I've got I've got some that are just patron only questions but I've got a couple more um for me or for, for the main interview anyway um so I, I'm I'm interested when you you're reading accounts of things that are um in buildings say they were in Westminster Palace but buildings that we don't have anymore or um I've just read James Clark's book on the dissolution of the monasteries um, uh, there's an account in Gareth Russell's new book on the palace of a, a, a basically Elizabethan quote unquote tourist with his account of, um, Hampton Court Palace, what was left in there because mm. Elizabeth was a smaller palace at the time. So quite a lot of things were left in and all these artifacts, do you read things like that and go like, is there any way of you clocking that, remembering those sorts of things? And then, so, and then having an eye out for, Oh, I wonder if these will come up. You know, is there something from a uh, reason? I'm sorry, I mentioned the dissolution of the monasteries is apparently quite a lot of stuff didn't make it into the coffers. <laughs> so there's, mm. there's a bit of a discrepancy between what had been sort of supposed to have been in, um, you know, in a monastery and what actually ended up uh, the property of the crown. And so there's discrepancies there. And there's all these, these places that, um, you know, that, that, that don't exist anymore. Obviously, we're full of things. So do you have an idea sometimes what you would like to find or is it literally just as long as it looks like it's of the right sort of period, then I'll look into it? It's a complete, I, I don't go looking for things because no. um, I think that can be the wrong way round. I think you can spend your entire life looking for one thing. And if it happens not to exist, you've wasted your life. <laughs> uh, so but if you if you could just keep an eye open and uh, keep your eye and mind open and look for things which look like they're of quality then usually where there's quality there's a story because mm. it's it's the quality is the product of elite patronage and someone's made it someone's made oh. it someone's paid for it for a reason exactly and it's you know god bless show-offs in the past because <laughs> <laughs> it's it's show-offs who want to communicate about themselves and it's the communication which makes the language of objects specific whether it's heraldry or whether it's um you know initials like Anne of Cleves panels you know the, those are all about her and her status right mm. and you know many of us are a bit bored now about status and dignity as the art historical you know cri criteria you know alone you know showing off one's wealth and status well you know yawn um but actually <laughs> it's their it's their learning it's their cultural identity that i'm really interested in you know how do they see themselves in relationship to ideas of faith and society and and all kinds of things you know whatever they want to say on their own terms mm. so um you know if you if you go looking for an object and to to return to your example of hampton court there there are three really good diaries published in the years around 1600. And um, my favourite amongst them is um, a young man um, who called Baron Waldstein, who arrived on something like a Euro, Euro rail year, you know, going around England. And um, he, he kept brilliant diaries. It's very clear that housekeepers were given, you know, paid a shilling, given a backhand to show people around places like Hampton Court and Windsor. And that by the Elizabethan period, these places were museums, essentially. They were stuffed full of the 
furniture and chattels of ancestors and shown off as such. Mm. And but you only get very vague descriptions about things. Um, at Hampton Court, for example, there were numerous pieces which were embroidered with pearls, which was Elizabeth I's favourite material. And But how would you know an Elizabethan uh, cushion with pearls? Uh, I mean, I doubt such a thing would have escaped notice. You see, carved oak is because there's so much of it. And so much of it is just what Victorians did, that it mm. becomes subsumed in this sea of lookalikes. But textiles um, and old textiles with you know, cloth of gold and such things and tapestries are quite a rather more readily identified. And so these things don't tend to um, swim, you know, to, to survive that well. But um, there are extraordinary objects. Um, will I ever come across them? Who knows? Jerry Broughton's work on the sale of Charles I's goods and how the French, for example, bought uh, many of the items that came out of the palaces at the Civil War and then the Spanish as well, which is why we're finding Henry VIII's tapestries in in Spain. I mean, not just because of the Civil War. This one seems to have gone in the 1770s. It survived. Oh. <laughs> um, went from Windsor in the 1770s. So there's all kinds of random ways in which things might escape mm. um, that if, if you decide that one thing seems interesting and you go after it, that, I mean, look, you, you're facing all kinds of ad, uh, um, problems like um, house fires. Yeah. You know, so much, so much stuff went in the house fires. Mm. Like, even if you're a documentary historian, you realise how partial are the survivals of documentary histories because so much mm. is just gone. So, um, no, if if you look for an object, you, you you're, you're doing it with an enormous handicap. If you keep an open mind, um, it's like trawling with a net. Sooner or later, some fish will come along. You may not know what species it is, but then that that's your job is to figure out what it is. Mm. And do, so do you only focus on furniture mainly? Or, you know, have you caught, sort of got your eye, I don't know, in case something does come up? I just think, you know, like you say, things go to other countries for some reason, or maybe someone finds something that they don't know the significance of and need to make up make some cash so that might come come up you know but is it furniture mainly or furniture, will you take a look yeah, at furniture things? and and just just furniture and carved items i would right. say sometimes textiles um mm-hmm. yeah tapestries fragments of um they're super interesting um and an embroidery like the um, part of the bed tester of Antoine de Gramont the third, Louis the Fourteenth man, um, and um, but but the te- you tend to find that the objects that carry identifiable attributes are either carved or embroidered, or they're or they're right. painted. You know, they could they could be manuscripts, but <clears throat> there's um, I, I I don't I don't know much about how to to date manuscripts uh, and that's a specialism in itself so I don't I don't tend to strain it I'll admire them and I will study what are in libraries um, for their own value but I don't go out looking for manuscripts and books of hours and think I should be lucky to pick up a book of hours Mm. I I, I leave that to the specialists I could probably make some very expensive mistakes there yes quite (laughs) quite okay well I've got a a few questions from patrons but before we we do those um 
do you want to tell people where they can find you um, or what you're working on at the moment? Um, I think you do Twitter. Yeah, I do Twitter. So, yeah, if you look for Jonathan Foyle or Dr. Jonathan Foyle on Twitter, then um, you, you can get in touch that way. But I, yeah, I do. I, I, I talk quite widely. I talk for groups like the Arts Society and um, history groups. Well, at the moment, I'm working four days a week for um, Bath and Wells, the diocese uh, on church buildings, because that's my natural territory. But I've written six monographs on cathedrals, which are the, like the 10,000 foot view with a big cultural context and the massive buildings. Um, but I'm really concerned for churches and they're going through some hard times as congregations dwindle and... Mm-hmm plans have to be found for how they can be useful in the future in in numerous often new ways how do they try and approach net zero which the church of england want them to achieve you know so i'm 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 doing four days a week as as a church buildings advisor and helping people to plan those kinds of projects and think about how to use their churches and um, conservation issues and maintenance the rest of it it's fascinating i'm really enjoying it Uh, other than that I, I will um giving lectures. I gave one at Cambridge Uni this week. And um uh, in sometimes things like interpretation films have just presented the Ely Cathedral uh, multimedia guide uh, and enjoy doing that kind of work. And bits of telly. So there's series four of Secrets of the Palaces coming up. So um if it's not communicating with lectures or televisions, it's um helping people in churches to look at what they've got and um, plan how to use it that's very rewarding fantastic sounds great well I can thoroughly recommend well, if you've got any online lectures that people um, attend those because they're they're fascinating as well so it's great that you do that because it means people can have access to you which is great thank, so thank you, you, you for much. that thank you well it's, it's a great it's a great pleasure and I must do more you, you've, you've reminded me now so that's a good prompt that's a dig in my side there <laughs> <laughs>